grab your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Romans. Uh, we're going to be beginning chapter 11 today and looking at the first 10 verses. Now, I know from speaking with many of you uh, that our walk through uh, the book of Romans so far over about the last year and a half has been really fruitful. God's just been extremely faithful to us to work through the proclamation of his word. Uh, it, it, we're really excited about that and we're trusting him for that today. Um, we just, we count on him for it. It's why we do what we do. It's why we work through books of the Bible. I'm so glad you're here for that. What I'd like to do is just read our text for us, the first 10 verses of Romans 11. I'll pray and then we'll jump right into it. Romans 11 uh, verses 1 to 10, Paul writes this. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. That's God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you, first of all, as we come before you, as we open your word. God, I thank you that we have your word. Thank you for the Bible, God, the, the gift that this is to us, not just so that we can know about you, but so that we can, we can be sustained and sanctified. And we know that we find our very life in your words, God. So we come before you this morning and ask you that you would nourish us, that you would strengthen, build your church today, Lord. I pray for those here, Father, who don't yet know you, that they're just visiting or they're just, they're skeptics or they're seeking on a spiritual journey. God, we just want to pray for them, lift them to you and ask you to save them. Father, I pray for those here who are your sons and daughters and maybe they've been walking with you for a long time. They've been in your word for a while. God, I pray that today you would change all of us. Lord, that we would walk out of here just more equipped with, with understanding of who you are and what that means for our lives and, and, and just to know how to better live in light of all the, the truth that we have in your word. God, help us today. I pray that you would remove distractions from this place. Father, please don't allow me to be a distraction. We all come in here with so many different things, God. Would you just focus our eyes and focus on our, our hearts on you? We need you, Lord. This is in your name, Jesus, and it's for your glory. It's because we love you, because you first loved us in your name. Amen. Now, I'm really excited about uh, beginning Romans chapter 11 today. We have a great text in front of us, but before we get into it, there's one aspect uh, that I think is really important of what we're going to be seeing over the next few weeks that I'd like to try to bring a bit of clarity on. See, over the last year and a half, we've talked a lot about one thing in particular. You've heard this phrase a lot, the nation of Israel. 
Right? We've talked a lot about the nation of Israel. And one of the dangers with this topic for us as people living in Vancouver in 2014 is that it can be really easy for us to misunderstand what we're actually supposed to do with that topic. And unfortunately, it's really common for us to deal badly with this topic by making one of two equal and opposite errors. On the one hand, we can make too much of all this talk surrounding the nation of Israel. And on the other hand, we can make far, far too little. For example, there are people today in the first category who believe that God intends uh, to return all of us to the festivals, rituals, and observances that he once commanded of the nation of Israel. See, they see Israel as kind of a prototype of where we're all headed. That's how, they, that's how they see it. Often these people have seen the beauty, the symbolism, the deep richness that's inherent within things like uh, the feasts and the festivals of that nation. They've seen this beauty and how it foreshadows what's yet to come. And, and, and they believe that the church is missing out on those things. And they're absolutely right. They're right. But the problem with that is that the Bible could not be any more emphatic on the point that each and every one of these observances and rituals has been fulfilled in Jesus. It has been fulfilled in Jesus or it will be fulfilled through the work that Jesus has already done. See, the entire law pointed to our need of a savior, our need of a Messiah, someone to come and intervene for us, to bring peace and reconciliation between us and God because we couldn't do it for ourselves. And the entire religious system foreshadowed his coming. But the great news is that we don't need the shadows anymore because we have the very one that they point to. So that's first. But on the other hand, and I think far more common for us uh, in our circles we have people who just don't see how anything to do with the nation of Israel can apply to our understanding of the gospel. Why not just skip it? Why all this talk about the nation of Israel? Why can't we just kind of spiritualize it away until all that's left is metaphor? I mean, what's wrong with that? And sadly, that's what often happens. But let me give you a few examples of the problem with this. First... As we've seen through the entire book of Romans so far, and if you've read much of the Old Testament, you know that God's heart, his character, his nature, his love is revealed to us in, in huge ways through the way that he has walked with this family called Israel. We, we learn a lot about God through this. The entire Old Testament points to Jesus and the entire Old Testament is the story of God bringing the Messiah into creation through this family. That's the story. We've also seen that any disobedience or sin that Israel as a nation was being held responsible for is no different from the sin of our own hearts. I mean... On a personal level, I'll just, as I read the Old Testament, I mean, there are a few places that I'm more convicted of my own sin than reading through Israel's story. I see myself, it's like a mirror. All of the Bible is like a mirror, James tells us. But that's not going far enough yet. Now, there's an analogy coming up in the next couple weeks that's going to help us understand how Israel and the church relate to each other. And I don't want to jump ahead and spoil that, but it's important for our text today 
that you and I understand that despite the fact that there is one and only one church of Jesus, and despite the fact that as far as our standing in him, by grace alone, through faith alone, there is neither Jew nor Greek, Galatians 3 tells us, we cannot miss the fact that God has chosen and used this nation called Israel in an extremely unique way throughout all of redemptive history. He just has. The story of redemption culminating in the person and work of Jesus cannot be proclaimed the way God has intended it to be if we just leave off the means through which he brought Jesus to us. Why? Because they're special or better? No. Because God chose to have it this way. I just want us to see this morning, as we, as we get going, I want us to understand whether you're here, you're Jewish or you're non-Jewish, all of us, because of this, should be marked by humility. And not just humility, but all of us also should, like Paul, have a strong desire to see this people whom God has used in such a unique and powerful way throughout history to see them come to Jesus. We should desire, I mean strongly, to see the people of Israel saved. There's beauty in that. There's a story unfolding that we're going to see today. And we should desire that. We should want that. And we're going to get more to that in the coming weeks. But please, let's not spiritualize away things that are said, specific to a group of people, just because we don't understand what to do with it. Because God's given us this word. It's for us. And we're a part of this story. So that being said, let's jump into our text. Paul opens chapter 11 uh, with a question, a question concerning the nation of Israel. He's asking this question as a response to where he left us at the end of chapter 10. Now, if you hear last week, um, you'll remember that Paul wrote in Romans 10 verse 21, he said, but of Israel, he, meaning God, says all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's how Romans 10 ended, with the patience and long-suffering of God holding out his hands to this people, disobedient and contrary, which brings Paul to ask a question in the first verse of our text. Have a look at it, please, in your Bible, on your app. Romans 11:1. 1, I ask then, he writes, has God rejected his people? By no means. Now the first thing that we need to see about this question is that it's not actually a question at all. The way that Paul writes this and in light of everything he said up to this point shows us that this is at the very least rhetorical. Which is why he doesn't wait for an answer but jumps right in with that phrase we've seen now several times through the book. By no means. Which sounds very polite to us, but it wasn't. It was the strongest Greek idiom that there was to refute any kind of a false claim. So Paul is very passionate about this. Absolutely not. No way. God has not rejected his people. In fact, this is so important to Paul that he wants to back it up. He doesn't want to just leave it there for us. So how do we know that God hasn't completely rejected the nation of Israel? I mean, how can we be sure? Because between you and me, if I was God, I would have walked several thousand years ago. My patience would have ran out. I would have been done. So how can we be sure? He gives us a few reasons. The first is found in the rest of verse 1. Let me read it for us. Paul says, how do we know this? For or because I myself am an Israelite 
a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So the, the first reason that we're given for the fact that God has not rejected the nation of Israel is that Paul himself is living proof. He's living proof. Paul was an Israelite who'd been literally dropped to his knees by the grace of God. I mean, literally. Why? Well, maybe because Paul deserved it. Maybe because Paul was searching for it more than the other uh, Jews around him. Maybe he deserved it more. No. Paul was persecuting the church. He was literally trying to destroy what Jesus was building. He had been given the license to murder Christians at will. And this is the man that God chooses to shower his mercy and grace out on, to bring to his knees and turn to Jesus. This was God's sovereign choice, and this is Paul's point. See, God would not have done that if he had decided to cast off the nation of Israel once and for all. Paul was living proof. Romans 11 verse 2 gives us another reason. No, Paul writes, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That word foreknew uh, is really important. Now what we're not being told here is that, is that God simply uh, knew about the, the nation of Israel in an intellectual sense. No, this is pointing us toward the covenantal knowing of God between his self and the nation of Israel. For example, Amos 3 verse 2, where God says to the people of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now what God's not saying is that Israel, you're the only people I'm aware of that exists on the planet earth. That's not what he's saying. If that were what he was saying, we'd have much bigger problems. God would be extremely short-sighted, very limited. Somehow Israel managed to cross his path. Now what, what he's saying here is that only you have I entered into this covenant with. You only have I joined myself to like a husband and wife are joined together by a holy bond. The reason we're being given here for why God has not rejected his people Israel is because God himself has entered into a covenant with them. A covenant that was never based on their work or their faithfulness, but was entirely and always and only based on his. This is why Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.13 that if we are faithless, he remains faithful for why? He cannot deny himself. What's at stake here is not the faithfulness of a nation, but is God um, not denying his very nature. And this goes to the heart of what I was trying to pull out uh, at the beginning. See, what we're seeing here, what I really want us to see, and what we see all through scripture, please hear this, is that there is actually a plan. A plan unfolding all around us. A plan that every single one of us in this room, whether you're in Jesus now or not, and a plan that every single person throughout all of history, including the nation of Israel, is a part. There's a plan. And God's word is starting to let us in on the plan through the words of Paul. Chapter 11 speaks really clearly about Israel's part in that plan. But it doesn't just speak about Israel's part only. It also tells us about our part in the plan. A plan for the fullness of time. A plan that engulfs your life. 
I mean, it swallows up everything that's happening in your life is swallowed up by this plan. A plan that will ultimately lead to the destruction of those who do not place their faith in Jesus and a plan that will lead to abundant eternal life for those who do. There's a plan and it's very important. So all I want to do in the rest of our time together, as we walk through the rest of the first 10 verses of Romans 11, all I want to do is try to lay out three aspects of this plan. And I'm really hoping, I've been praying for you, been praying for myself, that as we do this, as we look at these three aspects of the plan, uh, that we'll we'll be better equipped to live in light of it effectively and to understand our place in it more clearly. So we have the first aspect of this plan in, the, in verses 2 and 4 of chapter 11. Let me read that for us. Have a look at it. Paul writes, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now in trying to establish the fact that everything that's happening here is part of a larger unfolding plan and that the nation of Israel has not been rejected by God, Paul takes us into the life of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Now I'm sure uh, some of you know the name Elijah. Uh, you've, you know some of the stories and probably many of us here have no idea who this is. That's okay. Uh, we're not going to delve too deeply into his life today, but I want to try to give you a briefly a reference point for the story Paul's referencing here. See, Elijah was a prophet of God in Israel. Now what that meant was that Elijah was chosen by God and and, and had the ability to hear from God in very extraordinary ways. And Elijah's job, what he was to do, was simply to tell the nation of Israel what God was saying. That's what he did. Now sometimes, prophets were very popular. People liked them. They wanted to be around them. But more often than not, everybody wanted them dead. It's just the reality of, of how it went. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, we find Elijah in the second kind of situation. There's a price on his head. The most powerful people want him dead. And it's really starting to get to him. It's starting to bug him. Elijah is depressed. See, Elijah had been busy opposing uh, King Ahab of Israel and his wife Jezebel. And he felt the need, um, through a series of circumstances, to put several hundred uh, men who claimed to be prophets of the false god Baal, he felt the need to, to murder them, to put them to death. This didn't sit well with Ahab. He was unhappy with this. So King Ahab did what any of us men would do. He ran to his wife and told on Elijah. That's what he did. And Jezebel, who clearly wore the pants in this family, uh, responds to Elijah. It's a strong woman here, for sure. 1 Kings 19, verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying... Now here she's speaking uh, of the men that that Elijah had murdered. So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow... Then he, Elijah, was afraid and he rose and ran for his life. We then find Elijah a little later on down the road in a cave. 
This is admittedly a low point in the prophet's life. We read that he's literally asking God to kill him. He's suicidal. He's depressed. Uh, he's low and he cries out to God. It's a good thing to do, by the way. He cries out to God and it's this cry to God that Paul records for us in Romans 11 verse 3. Have a look at it. Elijah cries out, Lord, they, meaning Ahab, Jezebel, and the larger nation of Israel, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. And it's God's reply to Elijah that we're being pointed to. Romans 11:4. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And notice the words, for myself. See, Elijah was in the middle of despair because he felt like he was the only one pulling the weight and he had no strength left to pull it any longer. Elijah forgot something. And he was reminded of what that was in God's reply to him. See, he forgot that the weight was never his to pull. God had preserved a remnant of faithful men. Why? For himself. For himself. The very thing that God has been doing from the beginning. How do we know that God has not cast off his people? Because from the very beginning of human history, God has been preserving a remnant of faithful men and women for himself. For himself. This work of God for his own name's sake is the connection point Paul wants us to see, which is why he writes in verse 5 of chapter 11, so too there is a remnant. See, the first aspect of the plan that's been unfolding through all of redemptive history that we need to see is that the plan is God's. The plan is God's. It belongs to him. He's bringing it about. He's pulling it off. He will bring it to completion for himself. Now there's something really important about this that I think we need to see today. See, the Bible makes really clear to us um, the fact that the entire universe, right? Think big for a second. Picture it. Stars, planets, sun, moon. I guess the sun is a star. Don't worry about that. The entire universe, the whole cosmos, I'm not really good with astrology. No, astronomy. I'm great with astrology. No, I'm just joking. That's a joke. A really inappropriate joke. The entire universe... The entire cosmos, including this tiny little planet called Earth and all of us who live on it, we all exist for one reason. One reason, one reason only. For God. That's what the Bible tells us. That's why Colossians 1, 15 to 16 says, He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things were made through God and for God. And all things will be reconciled to God, through God, for God. That's what's happening here. Now, I really want us to hear this and let this kind of sink in. You, you are for God. 
Your family is for God. Your job is for God. Your life is for God. Everything you have and everything you ever will have is for God. Everything you are and everything you ever will be is for God. It's not for you. It's for him. That's important. That's very important. That's the claim of the Bible. You want to know who you are? You want to know what your life is for? Look to Jesus. You find it in him. That's what we're being told. The plan that overarches everything is his. And this also means that absolutely everything that we give ourselves to outside of Jesus will leave us empty, broken, and dry. I know that many of us have felt the sting of that, but the reality is everything outside of Jesus that we give our lives to wants to take from us instead of giving to us. You know, this is why Jesus told us that he alone has the water of life and anyone who comes to him and drinks the water that he gives will never be thirsty again. See, see Jesus is like the fountain of youth for those who come to him for mercy. Because in him, you find yourself, you find the life you were meant to live, abundant life, and it never ends. Never ends. Goes on for all eternity. That's the point. Point one, the plan is God's. The second aspect of God's plan for the fullness of time is found in Romans 11 verses 5 to 6. Where Paul, now referencing the story he just told us about Elijah, writes this. Please have a look at it. Verses 5 and 6. He says, so too, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And there's a truth locked up in here that I think our world, I know, that I know that I am extremely hungry for. I just need to be reminded of it all the time. See, if it's true, if what we're talking about today is true, that, that God, that the plan is God's and that he's bringing it all to completion and that all of us are just simply caught up in the meta-narrative of God's story, if that's true, then that has some serious implications for how we're to understand our relationship with Jesus. See, people want to know, at least some of the people I talk to, they want to know what makes a relationship with Jesus different than any other kind of relationship that I can find some level of meaning in? What makes it different? Why, why are Christians so intolerant and always preaching that Jesus is the only way to the life that all of us are looking for? Why? Well, the reason that a relationship with Jesus is different than any other relationship you have or ever will have in this life is, is, the, is because only a relationship with Jesus is built on a foundation that's completely one-sided, completely non-reciprocal. If you're in him, if you're a son or daughter of God, at peace with God through Jesus, then your relationship to God has nothing to do with what you've done or what you're doing or what you will do, but is only predicated on what Jesus has done on your behalf. That's it. There's nothing else like this in all of our lives. Nothing. And there's a word for this. This relationship between God and his sons and daughters through Jesus. It's called grace. 
And that's what Paul's saying. If God's plan is being worked out by grace, then it's no longer on the basis of works. Why? Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It makes no sense. Now, I think we get this, but I don't think we get this. Now, I think we get this to a point, uh, in one sense, we understand the concept, many of us, that we're saved uh, only by Jesus' work, but I think we just constantly forget, at least if anybody else in this room is like me, I constantly forget this. I'm constantly trying to thank God and to earn my way to him and earn my standing in him by gathering up a whole bunch of energy and steam and trying to accomplish things in my own energy, my own strength. I constantly find that, you know, I fall or I just find sin in my life, in my heart or my mind or whatever, and I feel further from him. And I find that when I'm doing really well and when, I, when I'm finding that I'm, you know, I'm walking well, I'm reading my Bible, I'm, I'm really abiding in him and in his word, I feel closer to him. But the reality is my standing in him is only predicated on Jesus. I've never moved one inch in either direction. But all the time I forget this. I forget that. This is why we so desperately need texts like Acts 17, 24, which says the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. There's nothing we can give to God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 likewise asks us, what do you have that you did not receive? Job 41, 11, uh, where God says, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And a personal favorite of mine, Psalm 50, verse 12, where God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world in all its fullness are mine. There's nothing we can give him because everything already belongs to him. All we do is respond to that. So we've seen that the plan is God's. And now our second point, that the plan is grace. And this is why finding peace with God through Jesus is unlike every other relationship. He gives, we take, that's it. Now, of course, as I said, we do respond to him, but, but let's not fool ourselves. Our response is enabled by him. The desire even to respond is given by him, as Philippians 2 tells us. The fruit, any fruit that we might have in our lives is produced by him and his spirit. We're really, I mean, we're, we're really along for the ride here. And that's a really good thing. That's the freedom that every man, woman, and child is looking for and longing for at the deepest level in the human heart. So the plan is God's and the plan is grace. The third aspect of the plan that God is unfolding all around us is found in verses 7 to 10. Have a look at it. We can't miss this. This is where Paul zooms back in on ethnic Israel and what's happened to them. And he's trying to ignite something within us. Let me read verses 7 to 10 for us. Paul writes, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. 
Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now this is some heavy language from Paul. And we're getting really used to that by this point. He's not beating around the bush here. He's going straight to the point and it's because this is really important. We need to get what's happening here. See, here he's speaking about those in the nation of Israel who've rejected God, who've not been elected to salvation, and he calls them the rest. He says, verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And it's this hardening of the rest that he unpacks for us by quoting from, a, from, a, from several Old Testament passages. First, he quotes Isaiah 29.10, which says, For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. Then he quotes from Deuteronomy 29 verse 4, which says, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. And he finishes with a quote from Psalm 69, verse 22, which says, let their own table, their table being a place of safety and comfort, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Please don't ask me what uh, he means by loins tremble. I did not exegete that this week. Uh, if you have questions around that, we can talk later. I'm just joking. It doesn't sound like some any of us want. What Paul seems to be doing through this combination of texts is actually praying for judgment on all of those in the nation of Israel who have not yet put their faith in Jesus. Which is really interesting I mean, it's really shocking when we consider some of Paul's earlier words in places like Romans 9, 1-3, where, where he said, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Or his words in Romans 10 verse 1 where he said, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And that kind of language from Paul doesn't end there. We're going to continue to see that through chapter 11. See, Paul desires and is expecting many, many more of his Jewish brothers and sisters to come to faith in Jesus, to turn to him. So what are we supposed to do then? with these prayers of divine judgment? Well, well, let me give you a couple. First, we see Paul affirming here that those who remain unrepentant and don't turn to Jesus deserve God's judgment. We're seeing here a clear affirmation of the fact of the righteousness of Jesus in condemning wickedness. But there's something else here too. There's something else that we need to see. And we only see it because of the very next verse, which is a part of next week's text. But we, we can't understand what's here unless we just peek ahead. So I don't want to spoil next week. Um, but just look for a second at Romans 11, verse 11, where Paul writes, in connection with what we just read, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. 
Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. What Paul is telling us here is that God is not done. He's not done. The hardening that has come over the rest is not the final word. This stumbling of the rest will not lead to utter destruction for all because the plan is God's, the plan is grace, and the plan is ongoing. Listen, the stumbling of the nation of Israel has been completely engulfed, swallowed up by the plan of God. God's taken their rebellion and he's swallowed it up. He's used it. In fact, God is still using it to draw people from every tribe, language, and nation to himself. But Paul points out in verse 11 that not even that's the end of the story. That in fact, after God, after the nation of Israel rejects God and God uses that rejection to draw Gentiles to himself, he then takes the salvation of the Gentiles, spins it around to make Israel jealous and draw them to himself. See, God's not finished. He still wants many, many more of the Jewish nation to come to him. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us here, Vancouver, downtown 2014? Let me give you two things as we close that the fact that God's plan is ongoing means for us. First, God is still saving people. He wants more. His family's not full. If you're in Jesus, you already have millions of brothers and sisters. Millions. But God wants more. This faithful remnant that he's been preserving throughout all of history, of which you are a part if you're in him, he wants more. It's still growing. That's why we're still here. And God wants to use you to do that. It's why Jesus gave us the commandment at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. right? That our lives are to be spent making disciples. Right, that's all we're doing here. That's all we're supposed to be doing is making disciples of Jesus, growing his family. And just so you know, uh, the primary vehicle for life-on-life discipleship here at Westside is community groups. If you're not in community group, you need to get in community group. You know, we want to stop short of saying you have to be in community group. But the reality is that if, if all you're doing is coming here on Sunday, you're missing it. You're missing it. It's such a privilege and honor to do life with your brothers and sisters. And listen, not one part of the body can say to the other, I have no need of you. We all need each other. We need each other. You need me and I need you. That gets fleshed out in community groups. Now, if you go to join a community group today, which I hope many of you do, you'll notice that a lot of them are full, meaning we literally cannot stuff one more person into that living room. We have a lot of those situations. We need more leaders. So if God's stirring you to lead in that way, to serve your brothers and sisters in that way, you need to talk to your community group leaders. They will begin praying with you and assessing. And if God leads, they'll lead you into an apprenticeship process. We take the raising up of leaders for this very seriously. This is the front lines of ministry here. And it's very, very important to us Because God is still saving and sanctifying his church. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. And we need each other. The second thing we see 
through the fact that God's plan is ongoing is that there's no one too far gone. No one. The hardened nation of Israel is not too far gone. And if that's true, then there's not a single person in this room or in your family or in your job or at your school that God cannot save. No one's too far gone. And if you're still missing it, please hear me, that includes you. You're not too far gone either. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you can do that today. You can do that right now. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then come talk to us. We want to pray with you. We want to get to know you. We want to get you plugged into the life of this body. You can do that today. And for everyone else here who's already done that, I know for me at least, I need to constantly place my eyes back on Jesus because all I do is just turn them away. My heart is so prone to wander as we sometimes sing. I just take my eyes, I put them on other things. I put my identity in other things. So I'm just constantly readjusting, turning back to Jesus, turning back to Jesus, turning back to Jesus. That means that each and every one of us here today, we need to confess, we need to repent. We get to confess and repent. Where have you taken your eyes off of Jesus? Because today you can put them back on him. Listen, whether you're in Jesus already or not yet, this is true for all of us. Every single act of rejecting God and of replacing him with other things, every single thought, decision, action, through your entire life, no matter how public, no matter how private it may be, every single one of those up to this point in your life can be turned in a second to reverberate through all of eternity as a sign of God's strength, his grace, his mercy, and his love instead of your rebellion. That's the trade we make through repentance. It's amazing. Our sin actually begins to sing the glories of God because he saved us from something so horrible that we were enslaved to. So if you're in Jesus today, take advantage of that. If you're not in Jesus today, take advantage of that. This is very, very good news. So let me summarize what we've seen as we go. The fact that the plan is God's means that we can rest in him. The fact the plan is grace means that we don't have to earn anything from him. And the fact that the plan is ongoing means that every single one of us can today turn to him. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, God, that you are at work in the world that your plan, God, is being worked out according to your own faithfulness, according to your own character and nature, not according to ours, because God, if it were, it would have fizzled out a long time ago. Thank you, God, that we can stand in you, at peace with you, reconciled to you because of who you are, not because of who we are. Thank you that the plan is grace. God, and thank you that the plan is ongoing, that we can find our lives and their purpose in you. Lord, we just, we just, we're weak, God, and we need you to just continue to help us with this, to move through us, to empower us, to change us. We love you, Lord. 
We need you. I pray that as we come before you today, now as we respond, that you would just find, you would just find this pleasing. This is in your name, Jesus, for your glory. We love you. Amen.